0: Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com wordsforgranted, or follow the link under the Contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up. Really, it's how I'm trying to keep this show going. For just a buck or two a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Not only that, but you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. Thanks to Jay for his recent contribution. And with that, let's get right on to today's show. To be or not to be? That is the question. Yes, I went there. But as it turns out, the most famous existential question in the English language is actually a very appropriate way to start off this episode. However, we won't be asking to be or not to be on the grounds of an existential crisis, a la Hamlet, but on the grounds of a grammatical crisis or at least what might feel like a grammatical crisis to someone learning English as a second language. To be is the most basic and essential verb in English, yet it is also the most irregular verb in English. Not only are its various forms irregular, but most of those irregular forms don't even resemble the base verb itself. The participle been and the gerund being have an obvious connection to be, but the basic present and past tense conjugations of to be, am, are, was, and were, don't sound like they have anything to do with be. The only way of knowing how to correctly conjugate to be is by memorization. But why would it be this way? Isn't it more efficient for such an essential verb to streamline its conjugations for the sake of the easiest communication possible? Well, you might think so. But as it turns out, the reason why to be is so irregular is because its various forms etymologically derive from three separate verbs. It's a phenomenon that linguists call suppletion. Suppletion is what occurs when the various grammatical forms of a word are not etymologically cognate. The term comes from the notion that the various forms of the base word are supplied by other words. Another example of suppletion in English occurs in the conjugation of the verb go. The past tense of go is went and went is borrowed from the past tense conjugation of a semantically similar but etymologically unrelated Old English infinitive. A nonverb example of suppletion occurs between the words person and people. Person comes from a Latin word meaning character, actor, or mask, while its plural form people comes from a Latin word meaning population. So that's the concept of suppletion in a nutshell, and again, it provides an explanation for the cause of the high irregularity among the forms of to be. I wish there were a way that I could have saved this fact as a climactic reveal at the very end of this episode, but suppletion and the multiple etymological lineages of the various forms of to be are the main foundations of today's discussion. The suppletive nature of the grammatical forms of to be might seem like a quirky feature unique to English, but it's actually a feature quite common among all the Indo-European languages. This is because Proto-Indo-European, the prehistoric mother tongue mutually shared by languages as diverse as English, Latin, Greek, Hindi, and Russian, among many others, this language had multiple ways of expressing to be right from the get-go. So, to get to the bottom of to be's modern irregular symptoms, we need to trace it all the way back to this prehistoric source. But before we do that, I want us to identify the functions of the verb to be in modern English. I think this is a crucial step in understanding why its irregular forms came to be. No pun intended. The most basic function of to be is to serve as a copula. What in the world is a copula, you might ask? In linguistics, a copula is a word, usually a verb, that grammatically links a subject to a predicate. It derives from the Latin word copulare, meaning to link or to join. If you're thinking that a copula sounds a lot like a linking verb, you're right, at least in the context of English. All English linking verbs are copulas, but Copula is the more technical term because, as I already implied, in some languages, copulas aren't necessarily verbs. They could be suffixes or prepositions, for example. Since we're dealing with English, non-verb copulas won't come into play, but for the sake of discussing a particular concept in a universal linguistic context, for the rest of this episode, I'm going to use the technical term copula instead of the more familiar term linking verb. So, in order to understand what copulas are, let's look at an example. In the simple sentence, my wallet is black, is is the copula. In this sentence, the verb is does not denote an action. It merely connects the subject, my wallet, aka the noun phrase, with the adjective describing it, which is black, aka the predicative expression. This sentence needs the predicative expression black in order to express a complete thought. You can think of copulas as the grammatical glue that can link a subject to its characteristics in the absence of an action. Of course, copulas don't only link subjects to adjectives, but to a variety of grammatical phrases, including prepositional phrases, my money is in the wallet, adverbial phrases, My wallet is cheaper than yours. And verb phrases. The purpose of my wallet is to hold money. Another usage of to be expresses the state of existence. A classic example of this is the English translation of Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am. It doesn't get any more existent than that. Another classic example is the question with which we began the show, to be or not to be. In English, it is not always easy to distinguish between the existential to be and the copular to be, because the existential to be is grammatically always copular. However, some languages actually designate completely different verbs to the purely copular to be and the existential to be. Spanish has both ser and estar, both of which mean to be, but ser is existential, as in yo soy un hombre, I am a man. And estar is purely copular, as in, yo estoy feliz, I am happy. For those of you who may be confused, in the sentence, I am a man, am is grammatically copular, but semantically existential. It expresses something that is eternally true about me. Whereas in the sentence, I am happy, am is both grammatically and semantically copular. The meaning of am here is simply to link the subject, I, with a temporary adjective, happy. English also uses to be as an auxiliary verb to form complex grammatical tenses, such as present and past progressive, as in I am walking to the store, and the passive voice, the store was walked to. So, as we can see... Even though to be is the most basic and essential verb in English, it has a wide range of subtle meanings that, over time, have all been condensed into a single verb. You get a lot of linguistic bang for your buck with the verb to be. The independent sources from which the verb's modern conjugations are variously borrowed each had their own grammatical or semantic functions according to the categories just described. Languages tend to simplify over time, so ironically, You might call the consolidation of several distinct verbs into a single verb a byproduct of simplification, although in turn, it has created highly irregular forms that today just seem like random quirkiness of the language. With these things in mind, let's take a look at these ancestral verbs. If you haven't been wearing your thinking cap, now's the time to put it on because things are about to get even more confusing than they already are. I'm going to do my best. Since to be is the verb's infinitive form, let's begin our etymological investigation here. (music) To be ultimately derives from the Proto-Indo-European root word, buch. Disclaimer, The pronunciation of Proto-Indo-European is up for debate, and since I'm no expert in Indo-European phonology, my pronunciations are approximations of approximations. Linguists have reconstructed the primary meaning of buch as to grow, though they also believe it meant to become, happen, or appear. None of these definitions exactly means to be in the modern sense, but it's not a stretch to see how they can be semantically connected to a state of existing, or at least coming into existence. By the time Buch had passed into Old English, it had become the word Beon, variantly recorded as Beom and Beon in different regions. In Old English, Beon and its variations strictly meant to be or to become. Indeed, Bayon is the direct etymological ancestor of the modern English be, but surprisingly, it did not produce the word to become. In spite of their similarity in spelling and meaning, be and become are genetically unrelated words. But in order to keep things coherent, if that's even possible, I'm going to touch on the etymology of become at the end of this episode. When beon, the infinitive, was conjugated in the simple present tense, its various forms began with a B sound and followed a fairly logical paradigm. However, the simple present tense in modern English doesn't actually correspond to the present here and now, and this was true in Old English as well. The simple present tense in English has always been used to express things that are eternally true, or things that occur with regularity. For instance, the sentence, I walk to school, is in the simple present tense, but it doesn't mean that the speaker is walking to school presently. It means that the speaker walks to school on a regular basis. This is an existential truth. In other words, something that, for all intents and purposes, exists permanently. So, it is from this part-grammatical, part-semantic characteristic of beon that the modern English word to be inherits its capacity to express states of existence. Now, if the speaker of this sentence were walking to school right now, he or she would say, I am walking to school. That's called the present progressive tense, and it uses to be as an auxiliary verb and inflects walk with the ing ending. In this context, walking is called a participle. Walking is inherently a temporary action and cannot eternally or generally be true. Well, when the Old English word bayon was used to express actions that are presently happening, a la the present progressive tense, it magically became the participle weisende. The participle wesende sounds nothing like beon, And that's because it was a conjugation borrowed from a completely different verb. That verb was weisan. Not only that, but beon also borrowed its past tense conjugations entirely from the paradigm of this verb weisan. Since beon was primarily a verb used to describe states of existence, it kind of makes sense that it would become a different verb in the past and progressive tenses, if something is in the past tense, it no longer exists. And if something is currently happening now, it is implied that at some point it will stop existing. So, what did this verb huesan mean? Wesan also meant to be. It ultimately comes from the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root word wes, which according to linguists meant to remain, abide, live, or dwell. However, By the time the word wasan had emerged in Old English, it had lost all traces of this older meaning and had become one of the main ways of expressing to be in the copular sense. Now, if we look at our modern forms of the verb to be, two of them start with the letter w, was and were. Indeed, both of these derive from conjugations of wasan, and it's no coincidence that was and were are both past tense verbs as we've already addressed the infinitive bayon had no past tense forms of its own as it turns out wesan itself was also a suppletive verb quite amazingly Weson borrowed some of its simple present tense conjugations from a verb that once had existed in Proto Indo European but had never survived on its own into Old English. That Proto Indo European root word was hesti, and it meant to be. Taking phonological changes into account, this ghost of a word hesti supplied the verb wesan with the forms eom, ert, and is which correspond to the modern English forms am, art, and is, respectively. As some of you know, art was an alternate and older way of conjugating the singular second person in the present tense. It survived into early modern English and is still read in the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, though it had become largely archaic by the 18th century. Of course, in modern English, we translate the second person singular present tense as are, R and art both derive from conjugations of the verb weson, but although you might assume that art simply evolved into R over time, art and R actually derive from different forms of the original verb. As already stated, art came from the second-person singular form, eart. R, on the other hand, comes from eron, the plural third-person present-tense form of weson. This particular conjugation of the plural third person was common in the North Umbria region, but not everywhere. If you can believe it, the suppletive paradigms of wesan and bayon varied from region to region, which is to say that different parts of England had different irregular forms of an already irregular verb. It's just crazy. Just for the record, the other plural third person present tense forms of wesan included sin. Sindon, and Sint. These conjugations beginning with the letter S have all died out today, and they come from yet another distinct Indo-European root word, but for the sake of staying on track, I don't want to say any more about them. However, I will say that it's likely that eron won out as the dominant conjugation by the late Old English and early Middle English periods due to the influence of Old Norse plural verbs ending in ER. It makes sense, then, that R is used for the second and third person plural conjugations. The assimilation of R for the singular second person is probably incidental and due to the phonological similarities between R and Art. As I mentioned in the overview episode of this series on grammar, England was invaded by Norse Vikings during the 8th century and the two cultures and languages fused as one in certain parts of the island. When I said that Old Norse may have influenced the way we conjugate to be in that episode, this is the detail I was talking about. Okay, so far, we've accounted for be, am, are, is, was, and were. But what about the participle been? Ostensibly, been has an etymology in common with be, but the emergence of been isn't straightforward because it's not directly derived from beon. Recall that the participle form of beon was borrowed from the participle form of wesan. However, in modern English, bin is the participle of be. This form bin did not emerge until early Middle English. At this point, the language was undergoing a lot of changes and beon and wesan were beginning to be consolidated into a single verb with simplified conjugations. That's simplified in scare quotes. Amidst these changes, English speakers began deriving the participle of to be from be itself, which was a completely new innovation. The word bin is really the base verb be plus the suffix n. Though we don't pronounce it in this way, that n is the same ending found in the participles of strong verbs such as taken, broken, and proven. Bin is really be Before the great vowel shift, its pronunciation would have more closely resembled this convention. Before wrapping up, I'd like to mention a few things about the verb, to become. If this episode were a chapter in a book, I would have included this aside as a footnote at some earlier point in our discussion, but because we're dealing with an audio format here, I couldn't do that. I felt that this digression in real time would be much too distracting, especially given the complexity of what we're discussing. Recall that one of the primary meanings of the Proto-Indo-European root word buch was to become. Just as a reminder, buch is the ultimate root word of to be. However, the modern English verb become is not derived from buch. This, of course, means that become is not cognate with to be or any of its present or historical forms. Surprising as it may be, This makes a little more sense when you consider the original Old English meaning of to become. The be in become is actually cognate with the preposition by, and the word originally had a wide range of meanings including to come by, to approach, to arrive, to enter, or to meet with. The modern meaning of become, something like to change from one state to another, did not emerge until Middle English. Previously, in Old English, to change from one state to another was a meaning expressed by the verb bayon in certain contexts, even though bayon was typically used to express unchanging states of being or existence, a la the simple present tense in modern English. The bottom line is that the English language is an absolute mess, but hopefully after today's episode, you have a better idea of why it's a mess. All right, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you don't have a headache. If you love the show, again, I'd like to remind you that you can support me on Patreon. Every little bit adds up, especially because I want to keep this thing commercial-free. But if that's not in your budget, you can still show your support by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast catcher of choice. Or you can just tell a friend to join the party. I'm on Twitter at, at @words_for_granted and Facebook as WordsForGranted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at WordsForGranted at gmail.com. Okay, see you next time here at Words For Granted. Have a great day.